Good morning, St. George's. Open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. We're going to look at two chapters of Scripture today, so we've got to get moving. Uh, just before we pray, if, if you're not yet aware, I believe the junior high girls are meeting out in the library. So if you're a junior high girl and you'd like to be a part of that meeting, we're about to bow our heads and close our eyes so you can slip out without it being awkward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time dedicated each week. That we can sit together and have our hearts recalibrated around the truth of the gospel. Father, everywhere I look in our church, I see a growing sense of hunger for your word. And I pray that you would continue to increase that more and more day by day. We would find ourselves excited and looking forward to that moment when God's word would be read in the midst of God's people and we would hear from our God and our Father. Thank you for your spirit that's already here and at work and I pray that that spirit would indeed lead us into all truth. For our comfort and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's the account of David and Bathsheba. You heard the passage read already by Christina, but let me just give you the Reader's Digest version in case you missed it. David is chilling at home. He looks out the window. He sees gorgeous Bathsheba. She's ironically taking a bath. And he says she is gorgeous. And so he goes and he takes her, although she is someone else's wife. Turns out she gets pregnant. And so David decides that he's going to pull a fast one. And so he calls her husband, Uriah, back from the battlefield. That presumably Uriah would then lie with his wife. And then David would be off the hook. Right? He's trying to manipulate and work this out. But Uriah is far too honorable a soldier, and so he refuses to lie with his wife while his brothers and in arms are still out on the front lines. And so David's confounded. And so then David tries another approach, and he gets Uriah drunk. He thinks, well, surely if Uriah's drunk, he's going to go and lay with his wife. But again, he doesn't. And so David continues to descend and descend, and he makes one bad decision after another, trying to control his own destiny, trying to remedy his sin with his own power. And so he instructs that the general would put Uriah at the front lines, and as the battle heats up, that the armies would pull back so that Uriah would die. And so David functionally, in this heavy moment of wickedness, murders. Uriah. Well, in chapter 12, David's then confronted by the prophet Nathan, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But what we have here in this moment of David's life is the account of sin and its wickedness. We also, in chapter 12, have an account of repentance, and we catch a glimpse of redemption. And so in this one account that we're looking at today, we actually capture something of a microcosm of the entire arc 
of God's story of redemptive history. Sin, repentance, and redemption, all captured in this one account. I want to set us off this morning by asking this question, what was the sin of David? Well, friends, some seem more obvious than others. On the one hand, you read this account in chapter 11 and you think, okay, um, note to self, don't sleep with someone else's wife, get her pregnant, and then have him murdered. Okay, I got it, right? That one's pretty obvious. But there's something deeper going on in this moment that I want us to drill into. Because in this deeper sin, we will see lessons that apply to us today. A close reading, especially of chapter 12, when Nathan confronts David, will show you that David's sin included these among others. Disobedience. Lust. Adultery. Chapter 12, verse 6. Having no pity. Well, that's a really interesting one that we're going to look at. Chapter 12, verse 9. Despising the word of the Lord and doing what is evil in God's sight. Lying and murdering. Now, perhaps you would drill into this passage and you would see more, but that's a sufficient list for us this morning. I want us to jump into this account and begin to peel back the layers and see what was it that brought David to this point and how it all spiraled out of control. We're going to look at chapters 11 and 12 and we're going to see that even in the face of David's growing and compounding wickedness, the Lord God is merciful. David repents, and his legacy is not wiped off the planet. So first, let's look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants and all Israel. Look, the first thing that I want you to notice in this is that cowardice marks this entire account. Cowardly disobedience. It would be far too easy to miss this, but a close reading is going to show you none of this would have ever transpired if David had been courageously doing what he was supposed to be doing in the first place. Did you see that? Verse 1. It's the spring of the year. What should David have been doing in the spring of the year? He should have been going out to war. What did he do instead? He sent others. It's really hard for us to reconcile this when we come to this, this moment of disobedient cowardice in the life of the great king. Is this not the same man who squared off with Goliath of Gath? What happened? Is this not the same one who penned Psalm 144? You know Psalm 144? Don't read the first five verses if you're a Christian pacifist. David said, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, 
who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. What happened to that David? It's the spring of the year. He should have been out to war. But cowardice had crept in. I think cowardice came to David in the form of comfort and ease. Maybe not that different from what happened to Saul. You remember Saul did a similar thing. Back in Gath. When the king of Israel should have trusted the Lord God so much that he was the one who rose up as the champion of God's people to face off in battle against Goliath. But Saul did what? He stayed back at home. And he sent others. Comfort and ease led to cowardice. Well, you know, comfort can lead not only to cowardice, but to complacency as well. David has, by this point, spent too many years in the comforts of the royal courts. He's long since forgotten what it was like to be a young shepherd boy out in the fields, all alone and trusting in God with the sheep and with his life. David has forgotten what it was. To trust God and square off against lions and bears with his bare hands. He's become so comfortable that he's forgotten his need for the Lord. Well, in that alone, we already see an instruction for us, friends. All the ills of the world, of the West in particular... I think, have beset us as a result of decades of ease. We've had it too good for too long. And so we've forgotten that we need to trust in the Lord. We've actually begun to live under this delusion of complacency and comfort and ease that leads to cowardice because we've forgotten God. Well, that's the first picture of cowardice in this moment of David's life. And the story unfolds, and I want you to see another form of cowardice that grips David. At no point during this account does he ever confront Uriah with the truth and fess up. Instead, he's a chicken, he's a coward. And so he manipulates Uriah and deals underhandedly with him. This cowardice on David's part creates a downward descending spiral of sin and destruction that could have been easily halted at any point. Friend, don't miss this. David was found lacking all along the way. And what, what was he lacking? He was lacking the courage to confess. The courage to confess to Uriah and stop the downward slide into murderous death. The lack of courage. Now, perhaps you were sitting here this morning and you would take stock of your own life and you would say, 
you know, I have found myself on similar trajectories of sin. That cascading downward spiral, whatever metaphor you want to use, where everything leads to another bad sinful decision of failing to trust in God and trying to manipulate the outcome yourself. And so you try to cover it up with another sin and cover it up with another sin. And now you recognize that, man, that was a trajectory that only made things worse and led to death. Because they didn't have the courage to stop and confess. Maybe you'd say that you find yourself on that trajectory right now. This is how it works, right? We, we sin, we disobey the Lord God, and it puts us on a path of least resistance because we're looking for escape. And so we begin to pile lies and sin on top of our bad decisions. We lie to ourselves. And we tell ourselves that we are making these choices to try to make things better or to try to spare someone else's feelings when in fact all you're trying to do is save your own bacon. This lack of courage keeps sin on sin. That's what David did in 2 Samuel chapter 11 because he's a coward. Just a little bit of courage. And he could have halted the ever-worsening tragedy. Friends, as you read 2 Samuel chapter 11, be reminded that the walk of faith in God demands courage. It demands a backbone of steel. It did so for David, and the same is true today. In fact, I would suggest that this is increasingly the case. God's people will need courage and not cowardice as the day draws near. Time is short. The Lord is returning. The Lord Jesus said that in this season between when he ascended into heaven and when he returns, things will get increasingly bad. And for you to walk faithful to God will demand courage. Courage that takes at least two different forms. The first is you as a Christian man or woman in these days, you're going to need courage to address yourself. You're also going to need courage to address the world. What do I mean by courage to address yourself? Well, it takes a pile of fortitude to honestly address yourself, your own sin, your own wickedness, and to invite and allow the Holy Spirit to convict those sins. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin to receive that rebuke from the Lord and repent instead of pushing it off and deflecting it and trying to find other ways around it. It takes courage to deal with yourself. It also takes courage for Christian men and women to deal with the world. This is in small ways and in large. It's going to take a pile of strength 
if you will stand firm in a world that despises the word of the Lord and does what is evil in his sight. You know, what's that courage going to look like? Well, the Lord only knows. Maybe it will be the courage to hold to your profession of truth in those polite moments when it would be easier to capitulate. You know, you just don't want the social pressure or the social stigma of standing for God's word. Maybe the courage will be needed when an employer tries to force you to do something that is contrary to the word of God and offends your conscience. Don't capitulate. It'll take courage. We live in a world that in the words of chapter 12 increasingly despises the word of the Lord and does what is evil in his sight. And you're going to need a healthy dose of courage. You're going to walk faithfully before him. And, and, and this courage is going to be hard to find. Because our lives are marked by so much ease. And ease leads to complacency. Ease and complacency that will only ever bring you to death and destruction. That's what we see in chapter 11. David's cowardice in choosing the paths of least resistance. Now David's cowardice was furthered by years of ease. And, and I want you to notice that this cowardice that was brought about in David's life by so much comfort and excessive ease led to sin, but it actually led to a particular type of sin. Did you notice what it was? Lustful sexual sin. Well, here comes an uncomfortable truth. We're told in chapter 2 that David is lying around on the couch. That the beginning of his problem is that he's disobeying the Lord. He's not doing what he should be doing. And as a result, he has too much time on his hands. Is this starting to cut a little close to the bone for some of you men? He's, he's idle. Idle hands are the devil's playground, right? That's, he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And so he falls into lustful sexual sin. Well, if you find that you easily fall into similar sin, take a step back and ask, where am I being disobedient to the Lord? What should I be doing with my time right now other than lying around on the couch in so-called comfort and ease, just, just giving yourself over to cowardly sin. You want to see sexual sin stomped out in your life? Have the courage to do the things that you're supposed to be doing. You won't find yourself loafing around with a desire to fall into that sin. 
I think also have the vigilance that's necessary. I think too often we as Christian men and women these days, we expect the right thing to be the easy thing, and it never is. We need vigilance. The kind of vigilance that expects that there will be a battle to do what is right. That, that only bad things and death happen on their own and left unattended. David lacked courage. He's unrecognizable to the boy who trusted in the Lord God and squared off against Goliath at Gath. This cowardice that crept into his life, it was the natural end result of a life that was given over to complacency and comfort and ease. Path of least resistance living. Taking the easy route rather than doing the right thing. Taking the easy route rather than doing the only two things that the Lord God requires. Trust and obey. The second, so the first, the first thing I want you to see is that at this at the core of this disobedience in chapter 11 is this cowardice, right? The second thing that I want you to see is that David went to great lengths and pains to try to deal with his sin, but he does so poorly. And this will serve as a caution and a warning for us that we not do the same. David's every decision is shaped by this um, I don't know, what is it, arrogance or something. This disregard for Uriah's life. It's a disregard that goes all the way to the extreme of murder. And, and you're reading this chapter 11, and I don't know about you, but every time I read it, I just feel like it's a, a train wreck, you know? The first car collides with something solid, and then there's just this like chain reaction, and I'm watching it happen as car after car piles into the back and I'm thinking, my goodness, what's going on? How quickly things go from bad to worse. Idleness, adultery, lies, murder. I wonder how many of the Ten Commandments David broke in this one action. And maybe when you're reading it, you would think a similar thing. You think how tragic. David could have Repented at any moment. And instead of things just going from bad to worse and compounding sin and, and all of its problems, there could have been earlier redemption and resolution. It goes from bad to worse because David goes to great lengths and pains to try to deal with his own sin but does so poorly. Look, it's not explicit in the text, but it's there if you dig a little bit. David does exactly what our Anglican Archbishop Thomas Cranmer said not to do when dealing with your own sin. In our Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer wrote this back in the 1500s. He said, when you're dealing with your own sin, there are two things that a Christian man or woman must never do. The first one is, don't dissemble it. And the second one is, don't cloak it before the face of Almighty God. 
David does both. See, Cranmer says your, your sin problem is only going to compound and get worse if you try to deal with the sin in your life by dissembling it. What does that mean? Well, to dissemble your sin means to acknowledge that it's sin, but then think that the resolution must be to make light of it, to deconstruct it, right? Dissemble it. That's when you see the sin in your life, but you come up with all of the yeah buts. It's dissembling. David also falls into the sin of trying to cloak his own sin. Now, cloaking is when we um, take our sin. So you, you, you've sinned. You acknowledge that you have sin. You try to deal with it, but you deal with it poorly. You either break it down, dissemble it, and try to say it's not that bad, or you cloak it. And trying to deal with your sin by cloaking it is to say, well, that sin may be true, but I'm going to take that sin and I'm going to try to cloak it and wrap it in my other good deeds. Because, yeah, I may, I may have done that, but, the, but it's really not so bad when compared to all the good things that I've done. Cranmer in the 1500s said, when you become aware of your own sin, don't dissemble it, don't cloak it before the face of Almighty God. And those of you who are Anglicans and know the Book of Common Prayer, what does he say? But confess it with an humble, lowly, penitent, and obedient heart that you may obtain forgiveness of the same by his infinite goodness and mercy. See, David's problem started out as cowardly disobedience. David's problem cascaded and grew because he dealt poorly with his sin. Ultimately and finally, God in his mercy brings Nathan to David. And Nathan's going to tell David the uncomfortable truth. He's going to call him out and bring him to his knees. We're going to look at that in a minute. But for now, I want to suggest to you that David's dissembling and cloaking of his sin is an invitation for us to think about where we do the same. Take stock of yourself. Is there a known sin in your life? A sinful pattern of behavior that you have given yourself permission because it's really not so bad. A sin in your life that you've tried to deal with and resolve by saying, well, that may be sin, but you know, goodness, look at all the other good things that I do. And on the balance of good and evil, I'm probably more good than evil. Well, you're dissembling and cloaking your sin. You're compounding it and making it worse, just like David. Learn from David. And take this moment to repent. You know, you, you say this, I'll say this again. You read the, the account of David and you see every moment you're, you're screaming out at the page. You're like, dude, no, don't. You're like yelling at the page and saying, David, I know it's bad, but, but you can stop it now. Just repent. Come clean. Don't fall into the sin of David. Covering up, lying to yourself and to others. 
compounding your sin. Okay, we're told that after all is said and done at the end of chapter 11, David tries to do the right thing, right? He tries to be the good guy. Verse 27, David sent and brought Bathsheba to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. Again, he's just trying to make good on his sin by his own power. And then verse 27, we're told that the Lord God will not be duped. One of the understatements of the century. Look at verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David thinks that he can just go on and on without ever having to admit or address the thing that everyone knows. And so God sends Nathan. Look at chapter 12. Nathan comes to David. Verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Did you ever think about how that was probably a really awkward moment, but it was actually God's mercy? Sometimes God's grace and mercy comes to you in the ways that you would least want it to. A friend that's going to tell you the truth that you need to hear, but don't want to hear. And so Nathan comes to David. And when we read this, we, we, we get a little different angle on the underlying sin of chapter 11. Of what precisely was David guilty? Well, it's the long list that we've been through. But all of those sins are upstream from the presenting dilemma. Nathan is going to call David out on a particular sin. And he does so by telling him a story. And the sin that Nathan calls David out on is this. That he who had many took from another who was impoverished and had only one. Nathan says, there was once this man, and he was a wealthy man, and he had flocks of sheep, and a friend from out of town came to visit, and rather than taking one of his own lambs and preparing it for the meal, he went over to another man who had only one lamb, a lamb that he loved, and this lamb used to eat from his hand, and he treated this lamb like a daughter, he loved it, but this rich man who had a big flock he didn't take one of his own sheep. He went to the poor man and took his one and only sheep and dressed it and prepared it for the meal. Verse 5. David is indignant. It says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David hears this story from Nathan and he says, who is this guy? Let me add him. 
see David comes to the right conclusion. He says, anyone that would do something like that deserves death. And then Nathan in verse 7. Talk about courage. Looks the king of Israel in the eye and says, you are the man. Look, there's, there's a couple of things that I want you to see in chapter 12. The first one is, it's always so much easier to notice the sin in other people's lives, right? This is not a problem that's exclusive to David. We all fall into the same trap. We have 20-20 sight when pointing out the sins and the shortcomings in others, but we are like, Coke bottle glasses myopic when we're looking in the mirror. There's this painful irony hanging over this entire chapter. There's this moment where Nathan is telling the story to David, and I imagine that everyone in the entire room knows who the man is except the man, right? You're like, whew, imagine sitting there, you'd be like, awkward. This is getting a little uncomfortable. And so, this is exactly what happens to us today. You're a Christian man or woman and you read the newspaper or you see the news. You look out at the world and you're so adept at pointing out the sins and the wickedness that's out there. Or you hear sermons or Bible studies and... You think, oh man, I really wish so-and-so was here. They really needed to hear that one. You were the man. In a very true sense, all the evil and sin in the world is not out there. It's in you. It's in your heart. That's what Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn said when he said that the line that divides good and evil does not separate nations or states, political parties or social classes. It runs right down every human heart. You are the man. You rightly see the problems in the world that entire societies and nations are given over to wickedness. But like David, you ironically and obliviously call for the head of the wicked man, failing to see that it's you. You turn to worldly solutions. That's what it is. You're calling for the head of the wicked man. You've heard the story. You've addressed that it is evil. And so you're looking at it saying, well, here are all the solutions. We need to bring about worldly solutions. But the, the problem is that the fundamental problems are not out there. They don't need worldly solutions. The fundamental problems that you see, the sin is in here. You and I are the man. And so the gospel remains the only solution 
that addresses the heart of man. We don't need to bring secular solutions to bear on society. The problems may be macro and systemic, but the solutions are always personal and individual. You're the man. We need people to repent and return to the Lord. Because when individuals become clear that they are the man, they are the sinner, they are the problem, it's me, it's not out there, then that alone will lead us to repentance. That then results in born-again, converted, saved individuals who are a force for good in their family. And families that are then born again and saved and converted to Jesus Christ, who are then forces for good in their community. And Jesus talked about this. He said, when you get this one right, then the kingdom of heaven is like a little bit of leaven that's worked into enough dough to make 12 lumps. you got to know, friend, that you are the man. The problem is with you. Not out there. And when you do, God will cause you to repent and be born again, and then you will be a force for good. That's how things change. So the first thing is don't be too quick to point out the sin that's out there. That's what David did. He heard the story of this man, and he said, bring him to me. That guy deserves death. Easy to see the sin in others. Hard to acknowledge it in yourself. The second thing I want you to see in chapter 12 is that this particular sin of David that Nathan calls out, this sin of while he had many, he took from the man who had only one. Now to be sure, David, even though he's oblivious who he's talking about, his assessment of this rich man in this story is right. Verse 5, he hears this story and he says, that guy, whoever he is, he deserves death. And so do we. Too easy for us to read these two chapters of Scripture and conclude, nah, I'm good. We look at it and we say, look, I've never committed adultery with another man's wife behind his back. I've never then had him murdered to try to cover up for myself. Yeah, that's, that's great. But before you start to give yourself a pat on the back and a hero biscuit, have there been times in your life where your lack of courage has kept you from doing the things that the Lord demanded of you. Trust and obey. Are there moments when your complacency and your comfort have caused you to act with a lack of faith to God? Are there times that you see where wickedness has just been spiraling out of control and, and rather than pausing and repenting, you've 
doubled down on destruction. Then make no mistake. Like David, we all deserve to die. And if this account ended there, it would lead to nothing but despair. But look at chapter 12, verse 13. David comes to his senses. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David is heartsick and sorry for his sin. We can actually read this in great detail in Psalm chapter 51. Sackcloth and ashes. He's brokenhearted. He rightly recognizes that while his sin has had a horrible impact on other people's lives, his sin is primarily an offense against God, right? He doesn't say, I sinned against Uriah, I sinned against Bathsheba. He says, I sinned against God. David repents. But friend, don't miss this as we close. There's no cheap grace to be found in this story. David's repentance and his redemption is costly. The son that he has with Bathsheba gets sick and dies. And here's the gospel. David's sin demanded the death of his son. And your sin and my sin demands the death of a son as well. But here's the gospel. God in Jesus doesn't take your son for your sin, but gives you his son. For your sin. Rejoice and repent because the price for your redemption has been paid by the sinless Son of God. Well, let me show you the gospel in another way in this passage. If the sin of David was, according to Nathan, that David, who had an abundance, had everything. David took from a man who was impoverished and had only one. That was the sin. Then let me tell you about our better David. Who has all the wealth of heavenly riches and eternity. And he didn't take from you, impoverished as you are, but he gives to you. All you have to offer is sin and death and hell. He takes that from you and he gives you life and righteousness and heaven. Oh, even in this great sin of David with Bathsheba, we catch glimpses of Jesus. David is faithless at this moment, but Jesus is faithful to the end. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, when we encounter passages like this in Scripture, our knees become weak and we tremble.
Because like David, we can fall into sins of cowardice and ease. We can compound our sin by trying to fix them on our own steam. God, would you, even this morning, grant us the courage to allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts and lives and to show us the areas where we can stop the downward spiral and repent and return to Jesus. Return to the Son who has paid the price that our sin demanded. We pray this in his name.